I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. We're here to discuss, well, the end of Jane Eyre. Very important novel, turns out. Pretty good one, as it also turns out. It's okay. Um, yeah, we've been reading, you know, if, if you haven't been reading Karen's edition, which I'm holding up, there's like two people in the world that can see that I'm holding this up right now and they're on the podcast with me, but I'm holding up Karen's edition. If you haven't gotten it yet, then you I'm, need it. What are you waiting for? Cause it's, it's great. It's wonderful. It's been a wonderful reading experience. And I just want to say that again. So Karen, thank you for putting the work in on this. It's, it's been great reading it. Well, thank you. It was a joy and I'm glad to share that joy with others. It's been fun seeing people who like me are rediscovering Jane Eyre. I mean, like, or discovering an affection for it. I've respected it before, but this reading has brought me, I'm learning to love it, I think. Um, And this, you know, that is in part because of how lovely this reading experience is. Zealous we have been in our... Yeah, Yeah, that that too. (laughs) Apologetic Um, (laughs) But there's just so many questions and the writing is so good and you you see the craftsmanship that this brilliant writer put into it. And so thank you to you both for for kind of unpacking that and showing me what's there. As always, it's been, it's, it's wonderful. I've heard from a lot of listeners on Facebook and an email saying similar things that they had respect for Charlotte Bronte, respect for Jane Eyre, but they didn't love it. And now they feel like they're getting closer, you know, moving closer in that direction. Now, of course there were, there's plenty of those people who've just been obsessed with this book since they were 12 years old. And there are some alternate alternate opinions as well, which we can, my guess is that will show up in our Q and A in particular. So with, with, on that note, we're going to do chapter 34 to the end of the book today. That'll be this week's episode. And then next week, we will do the Q&A episode. So this episode will go up on Friday, May 21st. We'll post the uh, Q&A thread on Facebook where you can post those uh, questions that you might have there. And then you can also, of course, email them to us. If you email them to me uh, via david at goldberrybooks.com, that's probably the best way to get your questions to me in the most efficient way. So then next week, we will dive into as many of those questions as we possibly can. Should we do a quick summary? A quick summary of the, the last 100 pages or so of the book. We did a little bit of... We did like a 20-word one that I, that I ran through before we jumped on the air. But Heidi, do you want to sure. do you want to do a little uh, summary of what happened here as we got to the end? Yeah. I mean, there's essentially two big things that happen in this section, but they're big, big things, yeah, right? right? One is that Sinjin relentlessly proposes to Jane, proposing to her that they marry and she accompanies him to India as a missionary's wife and that they be truly married, but kind of like live in, uh, I don't know. He, he admits he doesn't love her and doesn't want that out of marriage. He wants a partner, a missionary partner. So uh, she refuses and he will not take no for an answer. And so there's that, that takes a long time. Uh, and then <laughs> right when she, he's kind of like wearing her down, yeah. right? She's maybe, maybe I should, maybe this is the right thing. Uh, and uh, so right at the moment that she's considering giving in, she hears a call, a physical uh, she she hears the voice of Rochester calling for her, Jane, Jane. And so she she immediately knows in her heart that she must return to Thornfield. And so she, she does. Uh, and upon returning, she finds that Thornfield has been burned to the ground. Uh, and because um, Bertha, 
the uh, crazy wife in the attic has succeeded in her dastardly plan. Uh, well, I guess you could interpret it not as dastardly, merely as mental illness. So forgive me for that. That was an interpretive statement. Uh, and I'm not even sure I agree with it. But anyway, uh, so Thornfield is gone and Rochester is Strike injured. Strike the and adjective wounded. from the record. Yes. <laughs> Strike it. Yeah. Um, and then... He, he is not only wounded in body, he's blinded um, and uh, crippled in his hand, but, but he's not only that, he has also been chastened and repentant in his soul. Uh, and so they then now, now he is free to marry Jane and they, they find each other finally. And at the end, they're happy. And it's just so great. <clears throat> okay, so there's. So you already know my opinion about that. <laughs> <laughs> there's a handful of questions that I think are worth discussing. You each will have your own things you want to discuss as well. Um, there were two things that especially got me thinking while I was reading. One, we will hold off on because it's about the very, very ending, and particularly what is the the epilogue or the conclusion or whatever she calls it. I can't remember offhand. But then the other one is about Sinjin. Because as I was reading, I kept comparing Sinjin to Rochester, which I think you're supposed to do. And I kept wondering, is Sinjin actually just a worse guy than Rochester? And so I would love to know what you... How, you, how do you think about Sinjin? Because she, Jane herself seems very conflicted about him. I mean, actually, in a way, she kind of seems to see him for who he is, but that's what makes her conflicted. Because she, even when she talks to Rochester at the end, she says, this guy's got all these virtues, but he also has all these flaws. And so for you, one way of asking this question is, for you, do the flaws outweigh the virtues in this guy? Or is he dastardly? <laughs> because this is a complicated guy with some, and some of these scenes with Jane and his pursuing, his pursuing of her and the tactics he uses are downright dark. Karen, you unmuted yourself first. So I'm going to take that as your hands up first and you want to talk. So the floor is yours. My, my hand is up. Um, I just, I do want to say before I talk about Sinjin, I, I, if I ever thought of this before, I've forgotten, but I don't really think I have in this crystallized way that uh, what Heidi was talking about made me see um, or it just came to me again, but it's so clear now and so obvious. I don't think I included it in a discussion question, which I wish I had. Um, but really what we, in this comparison between Rochester and Sinjin and, and the two relationships, I mean, what, I know it's so obvious it's going to hurt me to say it, um, but what Rochester offered earlier was love without marriage and mm. what Sinjin offers is marriage without love, mm. right? Like, I don't know. Is that so, if that was really obvious, I missed it or forgot it. Um, but so Sinjin, right? So Sinjin's character, um, he is, as I mentioned in the discussion questions, he is being presented as sort of this, you know, the stereotypical, almost a caricature of the severe Calvinist Christian mm -hmm. who was part of, um, you know, that that movement and that um, sect was part of Bronte's life and part of discussion uh, in in the culture of the time. So in that sense, he is sort of a realistic character. Um, 
and I do think in, you know, we'll, we can look at these later, but he, he definitely is manipulative um, in ways that are similar to different, different, but parallel Rochester's kind of manipulation. Um, but he is sincere. He is earnest. Um, and even though I think this is the, you know, when I teach, when I teach, no matter what I teach, but especially when I teach novels like this, I can't help but offer like bonus advice to my students if they didn't pay tuition for. <laughs> um, and one of the things I say over and over in many contexts, but also this one is that, um, that sometimes when we are judging or deciding whether or not to be with someone to, to partner with them for the rest of our lives, the decision does not and should not always come down to what that person is like, although that's obviously part of the decision, a big part of it. But it also comes down to whether that person is a good person for us. And so even if Sinjin, you know, so I can imagine Sinjin being a good partner, a good husband to a different kind of woman, but he is not going to be a good husband for someone like Jane. And that's the temptation that a good person does not always make a good match. Um, now, that's not to, to underplay Sinjin's flaws. He does have flaws. But I think the more important theme throughout this entire novel is not so much whether people are good or bad. They're very complicated. They mm -hmm. are gray, not black and white. But yeah. whether or not they are the, you know, Jane has to decide whether they are the right person or the right model, even, uh, you know, even in terms of her other uh, friendships that aren't romantic, um, you know, are they the right person for her? Are they models for her to follow? And in this case, clearly Sinjin is not a good match for Jane. I really love that. I think that's super wise. I wish I was in your class um, and could hear all of the other <laughs> bonus wisdom that you provide. Uh, <laughs> I would not be paying tuition for. Um, it, that's, I, that's just Karen's other book. Right. Advice well, you didn't pay I'm for. I'm going to read that. Um, it's a great title, actually. I, I think that both of the men in this novel are going to be judged harshly by modern standards. And I think that this is some of what the purpose of podcasts like this are, is to say, as C.S. Lewis said in his masterful introduction to um, Athanasius is on the incarnation. That is just a classic in itself, this essay by Lewis uh, on the reading of old books. And he says, one of the purposes of reading books from past generations is that through them, we take a critical gaze at the assumptions and the ideals of our own generation. And I think that one big mistake that modern readers have with Jane Eyre is to look at it by the modern standard of what makes a good man and what a man ought to do to pursue a woman. Mm. And in so doing, we'll automatically discount both Rochester and Sinjin as, you know, gaslighters, abusive, like not giving her freedom, all of these, all these different things. And I'm not saying that that's not there. I think it is there for both of the men. But I also think, as Karen said, uh, that, that it is also worthwhile to look at these men through the lens of what it means to be just a complicated human being, exactly what you said, uh, that we can condemn those traits that are controlling and abusive in the way that they pursue Jane uh, in both cases. And then, but also say, 
is it also possible for such a man who would do such a thing to be complex enough to deserve a second look and some mercy on our part? Um, and I think that both of them do. And so I, I do not think that Sinjin is a bad guy. I just think he's not the guy for Jane. Hmm. And she sees so you're that. you're on the same page there. Absolutely. And to go back to, you know, to tie this together with what the uh, the wisdom from Lewis, I mean, both Rochester and Sinjin are products of their culture, right? So, the, so mm-hmm. the, the behavior that we see differently would have been normal and expected at that time. And to judge their character by our standards today is also, I mean, if we were, do, then that would make Jane an idiot, right? If we're, if we're just seeing them as, you know, in terms of the gaslighting and manipulation that we see today, but Jane is not an idiot. Jane is, is passionate and unloving. And, um, and, and so if mm-hmm. she's sort of, if she's not seeing what we see, well, that's because she also is a product of her culture and that's not to judge them as much as it is to ask, okay, so what are the assumptions about our own relationships and our own culture and our own understanding of Christianity and marriage and uh, courtship that maybe we aren't seeing that, you know, a hundred years from now, people will look and say, what were they doing? Yeah, no, I think that's wise. When I first read this book, I thought she should marry Sinjin. When I read this part of the book, uh, partly because I was reading the Puritans at the time and was like very interested in Calvinist theology. And I just, I, I was, I thought it was a bit, this this is going to tell you a little bit about my vacillating inner life at this time in my life. I was like, I thought it was refreshing that somebody was actually just saying you should do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Like just, I thought maybe she should marry this guy. He seems a little coming on a little strong, but maybe this is like this redeeming Mm -hmm. man from this, like, you know, passionate storm-tossed soul that is Rochester. And I, and so I, I well, fell for she it. She wonders I, that. Yes. And I, so right. as an adolescent, I didn't have those preconceived notions of what you're supposed to think about the book. And I remember reading it and being like, I fell for the trap that Bronte was, was giving me. There it was it just right in the middle of the road and I fell in. And, and then, so I think that what Bronte is doing is we we moderns again we have this vision of this is not the way you talk to somebody and we immediately dismiss it and the, the complexity mm-hmm. that goes into uh, that that's behind those kind of motivations in a man and I think one thing that this novel does is invite us to see is it possible to take the wrong tactics with a woman but still be a good man. Mm-hmm. Well, and to invoke a Heideism, which I've <laughs> come under the influence of these past weeks, is, um, you know, both Sinjin and Jane in this part of the novel are tempted to give in to duty mm-hmm. at the expense of desire, mm-hmm. right? When those two things really need to be balanced out or when they can be. And so, I mean, even Sinjin is driven by duty. Um, and so he just sort of assumes that, you know, why wouldn't Jane be? Right. Um, and before, you know, Jane was tempted to give in to desire, which she didn't. So it's, it's that sort of parallel temptation that she faces here to give up desire um, for duty. So then in the end, is her reconciliation with Rochester a reconciliation of those two things as well? I think so, yes. So then does that, what is the book saying about the nature of, for example, repentance in terms of that, the the reconciliation of duty and desire? Heidi, do you want to jump on that since duty and desire is, I, want to I mean, write Karen, a book you can too. This is what I want to do. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that this is why this is in my top five novels because 
I think that marriage is the unification of duty and desire, or ought to be. That's the way it should be. It is the sacramental union the healthy, of those yeah, things. Yeah. When I would say to my husband, right, Mike, my, my duty is to you and my desire is for you. And that's what marriage is supposed to be. And I think that's mm. why Christ uses the metaphor of marriage to describe his relationship with the church. Someday when we get to the kingdom, he's given us marriage so that we understand that. When we come to the kingdom of God, how can there be anything we do not want? Another Lewisism, that's from Paralandra. Um, when Ransom asks the green lady, this is didn't you want something? Did you want something? And she said, how can there be something I do not want? That's what the kingdom is going to be like. Everything will be what we want and it will all be what we ought to do as well. Mm. And, and mm. that is what marriage is a metaphor for. Right? And, mm. and so I think, you know, there's some criticism leveled against the end of this novel that it ties everything up in this like neat little bow and it's, you know, all what, whatever. But I think that, I think they don't get what Bronte is trying to offer to us as the audience, as the reader. Um, it, it is that what, what Rochester, he was so desire driven. He had to come to a point of repentance and he does, right? Because everything that he loves is taken from him. And 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 in which case he was left with nothing. It's, an o- it's like an O'Connor exactly. dark grace. It, that's exactly what it is. And he was because he was left without Jane, and then he loses his home, and yet he still, even though it was his wife who took all that from him in his mind. This is the story he's telling himself, right? Then he he still tries to save her and in so doing performs a redemptive act that leads him to repentance. And then he is thus worthy of Jane and can give her both duty and desire and not just one without the other. And, and that then, and what Jane has done is reject the life of pure duty, uh, which would be her, the way she's tempted with Sinjin, right? And in rejecting that, she is made worthy of Rochester because, and then they can bring those two parts of themselves and be unified together. Uh, and I, I think that that's, I don't think it was intended to be an allegory, but I think that it has that level of allegorical interpretation embedded within the ending of the novel. And I think that's why it makes it so satisfying. Hmm. And, and it's not, you know, I, I want to counter the, I think I would call it a more superficial reading that sees it as tied up in a neat bow. It really isn't tied up in a neat bow. I mean, yes, she ends up with the man that she desired in the beginning and they're married and, you know, they have children and all of that. But again, if we're reading it um, beyond that level, and, and this is where feminist critics have offered, I think, some good insights. I mean, to think that Jane can only be a suitable match for this powerful, wealthy man after he becomes blind and crippled, not, you know, and I'm, I'm using, you know, a, a word that goes with the times there, but but he was. He had this withered hand um, and and had lost most of his vision. Um, those things do end up on the mend before the novel closes, but the fact is that 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 the man that she wanted at first has become less of a man in many ways, and that's kind of troubling. That's kind of wow. Um, that says something that in order for them to be truly equals, he has to be um, maimed, physically maimed, um, and there's a, there's a lot to think about in just sort of recognizing that 
literal kind of fact and its significance um, in a deeper way. Should we wait to talk about the the conclusion? I mean, because so so when we talk about it being wrapped up neatly, what would okay? Let's be, let me put it this way. I don't want to make a judgment, but I do want to ask a question. What would have been the effect of the novel had it ended at the end of chapter thirty-seven with the sentence "We entered the wood and wended homeward," which, by the way, great sentence. Instead of adding the conclusion, which begins, of course, "Reader, I married him," very famous line, and then explains, for example, it explains what happened with Sinjin, and it talks about their life together and uh, her, her life together with Rochester, obviously. So, kind of takes us back to the beginning in terms of um, it brings back Adele, and it, you know. It's an epilogue. It ties up the loose ends, if nothing else. What would have been the effect besides not having tied up loose ends had they not, had she not included that conclusion? Karen, what do you think about that? Well, I think, I mean, we don't want to skip over that famous line, reader, I married him and the significance of that. I mean, the reason why that is so significant is not just because, oh, love and marriage, which is wonderful. Um, but it's also significant because Jane, this voice of Jane, who is the subject um, who carries us forward through this and, and whose perspective we are um, seeing through in the entire novel, she doesn't say, oh, reader, he married me, which would be the stereotypical um, mm-hmm. at that time, the other sort of uh, the uh, expected way of putting this. She says, I married him. She is an agent. She mm-hmm does the action and that is so Mm -hmm. important so we wouldn't have that important line um that gives voice to jane you and i were talking a little bit about this just briefly david via text this last week and i have been thinking about it ever since i'm not this is one thing i really like about david kern on the show i like (laughs) never question authors like structural unless it's like such a glaring flaw that it's really obvious. I just like accept them the way they are. David doesn't do that. He just, he's, he asks the question, does the book need this? Right. And I think it's actually a really good question. Just to clarify, it's not me saying that I know more than Charlotte Bronte. No, no, not at all. You ask the question and it, and it's, it's actually made me a much better reader because I start noticing those things too. And that's what reading in community is for. I, I went back and reread it after that conversation, David. And I like the chapter because I want to know what happens. And it's been such a long, it has been, let's look here, 730 (laughs) pages minus a couple with Karen's question on them (laughs) of them not together and miss, right? And so then I like a little extra because I don't want it to just end with them winding, winding homeward. I want to know what happens. Did they get married? Do they have kids? Do they, like, are they happy? But I have to say my preferences for the chapter, but I think that you're bringing up a valid point. Does the book need it? I don't know. Maybe not. How did I put it to you? I I think I said something like, I guess I could look at my texts, (laughs) but I said something like, I think it, I think if it ends at we entered the wood and wend it homeward, she could have fit in reader. I married him somewhere. Let's just, let's just say that for the sake of conversation, she could have fit that in anywhere she wanted in the final in 37. So that we still get that part that Karen mentioned that, which I think is a really important point that agency, her taking agency there and that being an action that she takes is crucial. So let's say that for the sake of conversation, she accepts that's incorporated somewhere else. I think that if it ends there, it's still a perfect, I think it's a perfect novel. 
if it doesn't, but I think including chapter 38 makes it more transcendent. Yeah. So if that, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm splitting hairs there, but I think if it ends there, it ends with a little bit of stasis. It, it, it's a perfect novel. The, 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 the way it heightens the drama by ending there and heightens the pathos and resolves the quite most of the questions that we have. I mean, there'd still be Adele and Sinjin outstanding, but you know, but adding 38, I think makes it another degree of transcendent. Um, Go so on. I be- like that interpretation a lot. I think it's brilliant, but what, <clears throat> what do you mean by that? Because a lot of the themes that you all have been bringing up, including the duty and desire thing, I think the, like there's so many outcomes that get revealed by the choice about the choices they make that get revealed in 38. There's a lot of impact that gets revealed, that kind of gets unraveled. That in some ways I can see why modern readers, including myself, are kind of like so many modern books are all about the, you know, not wrapping things up in a neat, in a neat bow. And so we've kind of developed an instinct to look for that, right? <laughs> or to be okay with that, maybe is a better way of putting it. But what she does is she takes us back to the beginning. I think there's even the stuff where um, I think it's really important that she brings Adele home. You know, it says on 732, you have not quite forgotten little Adele, have you, reader? I had not. I soon asked and obtained leave of Mr. Rochester to go and see her at the school where he had placed her. Her frantic joy at beholding me again moved me much. She looked pale and thin. She said she was not happy. I found the rules of the establishment were too strict, its course of study too severe for a child of her age. I took her home with me. I meant to become her governess once, once more, but I soon found this impractical, impracticable. My time and cares were now required by another. My husband needed them all. So I sat out of school and, and it goes on about Adele. And I think it's super important. That takes us back to where she started her story. She's in a school that's not unlike that. And she rescues Adele from it in a way that n- no one ever did for her. Mm-hmm. And so I think going back to the beginning and, and of course we get another line of agency. I took her home with me. She becomes almost the one who's taking care of Adele more than Rochester is. Rochester, she had been Rochester's ward. Now she is Jane's ward. And so the way all that plays out, the way she brings us back to the beginning, all those things, I think heighten our understanding of the themes that you guys have been unpacking. I think dramatically, if it ends at 37, that's a great way to end a novel in terms of just the drama, in terms of leaving the reader wanting just a bit more, heightening the drama, heightening the pathos, all that. I think that be, that's almost, like I said, I think it's basically perfect. This is more transcendent though. That's, that's my, I think that would be my, my take. But Karen, you did, you're ready to respond to something. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I think it's, your question is perfect and it is, it is the question to ask. And so if, if, and, and when we're talking about someone that we have agreed is a good, um, and perhaps a great author, then, and because the, the bad ones, this doesn't apply to, but we have to ask, okay, so if she didn't end it, you know, with 37 and the, the first line of 38, then why is the rest necessary to the artwork? You know, if this is a good artist, then it is necessary um, for for all these reasons that that you have said. And another thing to just kind of um, compare it to our modern expectations versus older ones, to just sort of end with the wedding bells, it's not a portrayal of marriage as it was understood for you know, centuries. I won't say all of, all of uh, human history, but um, marriage wasn't just a matter of making two individuals happy. Um, 
that's why, you know, even in, even in Jane Austen, when, you know, the main characters end up together, we get at least a few pages of sort of telling us how everyone else ended up um, in the earlier novels. And I keep referring to Pamela that, you know, that first uh, English novel without giving too much. Well, I, I guess I can't say, I mean, there is a, there isn't a, a wedding, but it's like two thirds of the way through the novel because there's a lot more that is supposed to happen in this social understanding of what marriage is for than just the two individuals ending up together. Um, and so Jane talks about um, how everyone else, you know, not just the final ending, but even how, about, the rivers and how everyone else ends ends up. She says on page three seven thirty five. My Edward and I then are happy, and the more so because those we love are happy likewise. Um, it, this isn't just about you know finding your following your dream and finding your personal happiness. It's about mm. marriage within a social con- context um, mm. in which marriage that that gives marriage meaning. So, I was thinking about how in the, in Charlotte Bronte's time the kind of experience that they end up having where Rochester is needs a lot of care probably would have been not uncommon. Maybe less so with the wealthy, but I mean, life expectancies were much shorter. Life was more difficult. Illnesses left, you know, more lasting, often left a much longer lasting impact. And so I, I imagine that that was really a profound thing to read in 1840s in a way that maybe doesn't you know, sometimes, you know, we, we all know some people who have, have to care for a spouse because they have an, a long-term disease or some, something happens. But that, I imagine for them, you take this, this larger than life figure in Rochester and he almost becomes, you know, he, they live in, in the edge of the wood in a little cottage and it, it humanizes him in a way that also ennobles him. It makes him way more profoundly human. Not, it doesn't just make him capable of winning her heart or however you want to put it or or of her deserving of her affection it also makes him for the reader it makes him more relatable i don't know i don't know i don't like the word relatable approachable i don't know what the word is but just the way it humanizes him as i think really is really important too um heidi go ahead yeah to to your point (laughs) you're doing great to your point on page 726 we have his statement of repentance and change, Mm -hmm. right? This is when we really know this is a new man. He's Mm -hmm. not just like a, his, his misfortunes, because in the past, his misfortunes had marred him, right? And made him worse, like had degraded him morally. Mm -hmm. And after knowing Jane, this goes to your point point that you made a couple of episodes ago, David, at the proposal scene, after knowing Jane, after she leaves, forces him then back without his desire and kind of takes the savor out of his immoral activities that he had previously, you know, used as a crutch or in a distraction uh, because now he has this real love for a good woman. Um, And then, and then he loses everything again. He goes through more misfortunes and then those misfortunes lead him to true repentance and to moral purity. And thus he becomes worthy of, of Jane. Um, and on page 70, 26, he, the first big clue that we have of that, that he's not just like a broken man now, just like wallowing in despair. Um, we have, uh, that he finally believes that it's her and that she loves him. And then he says, the third day from this shall be our wedding day, Jane. 
And then we have an important clue to the ennobling that you talked about. Never mind fine clothes and jewels now. All that is not worth a Philip, right? And she didn't want the fine clothes and jewels the first time they were engaged. She mm-hmm. resisted it. And she. this is now, now we have a clue as to what was going on in that chapter, um, that why it feels so weird to us and why like it was so off and he was pursuing her in a way she didn't want to be pursued and trying to like kind of drown her in his wealth. Um, Mm -hmm. And now we see he gets it, right? Real love doesn't require that. I can't, I'm not to treat her like a mistress, right? But a bride. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then down later, he describes his spiritual conversion. And this is really, really important. A lot of modern readers miss this. They, they miss the fact that he's had a conversion and thus is made worthy of Jane. Um, at the bottom of page 726, he says, Jane, you think me, dare say, an irreligious dog, but my heart swells with gratitude to the beneficent God of this earth just now. He sees not as man sees, but far clearer, judges not as man judges, but far more wisely. I did wrong. I would have sullied my innocent flower, breathed guilt on its purity. The omnipotent snatched it from me. I, in my stiff-necked rebellion, almost cursed the dispensation. Instead of bending to the decree, I defied it. Divine justice pursued its course. Disasters came thick on me. I was forced to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. His chastisements are mighty, and one smote me which has humbled me forever. You know I was proud of my strength." But what is it now when I must give it over to foreign guidance as a child does its weakness? Of late, Jane, only, only of late, I began to see and acknowledge the hand of God in my doom. I began to experience remorse, repentance, the wish for reconcilement to my maker. I began sometimes to pray. Very brief prayers they were, but very sincere. And then he goes on to describe the, the, the connection between them across the moors, the supernatural intervention of grace that brought them back together. And, and I think that this is, this is, we have to know this about Rochester, the, the criticisms that we've had before about him are in the book on purpose because we had to have something about him. He is the Byronic hero, right? But, but Bronte doesn't leave him there. She also transforms him through his own misfortunes into a a good man, a repentant man, a man who is reconciled to God and thus able to truly love his bride. Uh, And that's important in interpreting the novel. Karen, did you want to say something? Um, I I do, but it's, it's a little, it goes a little bit back. Oh, that's fine. I mean, okay. Yeah. It's again, another insight that I never thought of before, at least in this way. So thank you. But David, when you were talking about how Jane, you know, she's caring for Rochester and that wasn't that uncommon. I mean, people were sick and uh, life expectancy was not as long. And we talked earlier and this, this I hope helps to, to make this more um, believable, I guess, that Rochester's putting Bertha away in the attic, it, it, as horrible as it is, it's still, it's not as horrible in those times as, as we would see it now. Mm-hmm. There were so, there just weren't that many options for 
care for someone um, suffering the kind of mental illness that Bertha was suffering. And so in some ways, as, as we did mention before, you know, Rochester was doing, he was taking care of her the best way that he knew how, and he was doing so with, you know, with some expense and some inconvenience and so forth. But so here's the difference. This is another parallel that I'm seeing. So Rochester was caring for his ailing wife entirely out of duty, without mm. love and desire. Mm. He was doing what he was supposed to do. Um, and then we return and we have Jane caring for Rochester um, in his weakness out of duty and of desire. So there's a parallel there, but her, because she is caring for him in a way that is also loving, whereas Rochester's care for Bertha, Bertha was completely out of, out of duty and not out of love, you know, then we see that Rochester... He is he heals he improves and again we can if we read that just on the literal level it seems it seems unbelievable mm-hmm. it seems overly romantic oh he gets better his sight comes back okay yes that but metaphorically mm-hmm. all of us must become weak and broken in order for us to be saved and all of us do become better when we receive that kind of christ-like love um you know it's, it's so we have to read beneath the surface to see the 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 metaphysical this transcendent truth that this novel is revealing mm. so there's this there's this line that is another very interesting, just single line. On 729, he has been telling her his story to her. He tells he just tells her his whole story and about how he called out for her and so forth. She then says, reader, it was on a Monday night near midnight and expresses, okay, that's at the time that I heard the voice calling to me as well. At the end of that paragraph, it says, I kept these things then and pondered them in my heart. Which, of course, as Karen notes in her notes, is an allusion to Mary's thoughts about Jesus in Luke 2.19. How do you... What is Bronte doing with that line and comparing Jane to Mary? How do you how do you read that? Do you I mean do you think there's anything uh, how specifically do you take that illusion I guess is what I'm saying. Either of you can jump in on this. Do you have thoughts on this? I wouldn't interpret it in a Freudian way, as tempting as that might be. I think this is really more of a a reflection of someone who was kind of immersed in the biblical language Mm -hmm. uh, and scripture. And so it just, I mean, I find myself doing this and, you know, Mm -hmm. and I have to be careful, like on a place like Twitter to not do this because then people, uh, you know, accuse you of like bad doctrine or or what, you know, because you've misapplied (laughs) people on Twitter. (laughs) People on Twitter, yeah. I'm, can you believe that? Um, but so I don't. I I would just take it as just you know a reflection of of Bronte's immersion in in biblical language and applying it uh, this this way. I wouldn't interpret in a you know like oh Rochester is like her. Rochester is like Jesus to her yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because it's one of those things I think where you know you take enough classes that in college on literature as I did and they start making you they start programming you to ask questions in a certain way right <laughs> um, <laughs> they do. Uh, or to, to begin to like make assumptions or try to like make some kind of connection speaking of which maybe one day we should talk about why it's Sargasso Sea but I feel like that's probably today's probably not the day for that Heidi you were going to say something. Go, go ahead go ahead Karen 
No, I was just, I mean, I, we probably will spend a few minutes on this call. We've mentioned it before, this yeah, yeah. audible call that she hears. And, and again, this is, this is a sort of gothic romantic element, yeah. of course, but it also, it just reinforces the theme, the, you know, one of the many central themes of the novel that Jane is trying to figure out what her call is through her whole life. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's, this is, this is what makes the novel so relevant. How aren't we all doing? this yeah. aren't we all trying to figure out what our call is and and it's hardest not when we're faced with a choice between a good thing and a bad thing it's hardest when we're faced with a choice between you know some pos- two possibly good things or mm. two mediocre things um you know it goes back to you know jane's uh, admiration for her friend helen and 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 her you know she kind of has to decide does she want to be like helen because helen is a Christian and a good Christian, but, you know, Helen isn't really the kind of person that Jane is. And she has to resist that. It's not, that's not a call she has on her life. And so this is, this is Jane discovering her call Mm. again, in a very literal way that happens in the story, but it's, it's significance is more symbolic than the literal rendering. Mm. I really love that. I think that's so good. And I, I've actually, this is my moment to say, I've never thought about that before. I've never thought about the fact that Sinjin was calling her to the ministry. And in that moment, she's called away to the love of her life. That's so I've, there you go. There's your obvious connection that, um, uh, that I missed, um, I also really love this to go back to something you said earlier, Karen, about the Gothic elements of the story and, and how this is by considered by many to be the quintessential Gothic novel, but it's really not right. It has Gothic elements to it. Um, many, many Gothic elements to it, but she's writing, she's writing a novel that's intended to bolster the faith of her audience. And it is, she's writing it as a Christian. And I love that because she wrote one of the most brilliant novels in the English language that's ever been written. It's it's absolutely just so stunningly genius. And then she she used all of these kind of genre elements to do it. And not not once along the way does she cheapen the novel through those genre elements. And instead, I would argue that she redeems the genre elements to you know the service the service of Christ and I am not advocating then for a, a Christian interpretation of every novel that's not what I'm saying I guess what I'm saying is just it's lovely to see someone so steeped and immersed in the faith that even in writing a genre novel those elements become redeemed because that call is an intervention of grace and she never says reader that was the holy spirit right like she doesn't say that she just lets it be and then you know over the years over the generations many have interpreted that and in modern times we tend to dismiss it again this is one of those elements of the novels that so many modern readers are like that was stupid right but it's not stupid it's it's the point part of the genre and it is something that she's exactly it's something that she's saying hey like this was mercy that brought me back to this man who now is now we have been kind of purified and made worthy. And then we're, we're given this crown of righteousness and whatever. So you don't have to be a Christian to understand this novel, but there are elements of the faith that in the novel that it's really helpful to use as interpretive tools to try to get to the heart of what Charlotte Bronte is doing. And, and one of my favorite things about it is I like, I like 
the gothic novel in general. Um, but, you know, this one, as you've said, David, a couple times, this transcends the genre, but it utilizes the, the genre elements in, I think, a really brilliant way, both in the literary sense and in the, um, and in the interpretive sense. You, you both are saying things that were reminding me how, as I was reading the last hundred pages, I kept thinking about Pilgrim's Progress and kept being like, this is so much better. I mean, not to, it's more enjoyable to do it this way. Um, but that's another conversation for another day, yes. perhaps. When you were talking about calling Karen, it, it reminded me, the three main men in the novel, I think, are obviously Rochester, obviously Sinjin, but then you've got Brocklehurst. And that's like one of the early introductions of the notion of calling because he he pretends at least that he, that he has this calling to whip these girls into shape, so to speak, to, to, to teach them to live a certain way, to teach them to live up to a certain set of values. And in so doing, his calling, not unlike the seeds of Sinjins, is without love. And so I kept thinking how without the right balance of love in his own work, is Sinjin gonna drift into becoming a Brocklehurst? Like, could Brocklehurst, when he was younger, have been not unlike Sinjin without some virtues that Sinjin displays? Uh, but that's the, you know, the, the notion of calling is throughout the whole book. And so like Heidi, I hadn't thought about it the way, you, as directly as you it's, it is obvious now that you say it. He's she's being called, but it's that that theme goes back to the to the very very beginning. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I love this um, this comparison of Brocklehurst and Sinjin. I think it's it's um, it's really insightful and exactly right. And it, you know, and maybe that's the, we can at least uh, we have to talk about the very end. And so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The fact I, I think you're right. Sinjin could have become easily have become a Brocklehurst, but for the fact that he met Jane, which probably we don't have a you know it, we don't get a lot of that 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 it changed him, but clearly it it did uh, because they stay in in contact. And then also, not only was God merciful in bringing Jane into his life, but God is also merciful to Sinjin by ending his life prematurely yeah. so that he doesn't become like Brocklehurst. And um, I think, I think Sinjin is going to, you know, end his life glorifying his creator um, despite himself. Right. <laughs> um, well, Jane says his, no fear of death will darken his last hour. His mind will be unclouded. His heart will be undaunted. His hope will be sure. His mm -hmm. faith steadfast as if to say his conscience will be clear. Mm -hmm. And you, I don't imagine the same. I mean, unless Brocklehurst, you know, descends even deeper into his scroogeness mm -hmm. i you would imagine that's not the case for mm -hmm. for brocklehurst right i mean brocklehurst has lived to be an old terrible man um but sinjin i mean it just the implication here is that sinjin has gotten ill you know from something in his missionary service and he is going to die soon so he mm. the lord is taking him out uh while he's still faithful Hey, I just was looking at 735, and you actually note that she mentions characters from Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Apollyon and so forth. Heidi, what were you going to say? Yeah, one thing I noticed in this time reading about Sinjin, I, I've never judged him super harshly. I, I deplore his tactics to try to convince Jane to, to marry him. But I agree with 
I think you used Karen, the word sincere and earnest when you were describing him. And I think that that's true. And there's a purity of purpose that, that Jane finds admirable. And I don't disagree with her, but it did make me think of something that Josh Gibbs talks about in, in his talk sometimes that was so impactful to me. And Josh has said what, something along the lines of part of at some point in our human journey, we all have to decide whether or not we're just ordinary people. Right. And some people have a harder time with that than others. Um, And, and we try to teach our children. It's not a good idea to teach their children that you're special as opposed to just trying to live a good ordinary life. It's so brilliant. And he, I mean, it's just, he has one particular talk on it and I'll try I can't remember the title. I'll try to post it on the, on the page because we'll probably get the question. It's definitely worth the $4 download. Um, It's so good. And he talks specifically about that, this idea of like telling children that they're like world changers and, you know, all this kind of thing, rather than just saying like, you're an ordinary person live in ordinary human life. And that's a good thing. And there's, because the life that we've been given, the ordinary life that we have been given is a good life, right? It is our pilgrimage to salvation and and our our humility. And Hmm. so, and I think that, but there are some people who are extraordinarily gifted and extraordinarily talented and have an extraordinary ability to block out, you know, to focus and, 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 and I think Sinjin's, I think one thing that Bronte is saying through this novel is that Sinjin's one of those people. And in so doing, he he pays a high price, right? Mm-hmm. Because, and, th- and I think that's very clear in the novel. He is in becoming an extraordinary person. He, he then has to abdicate his rights or his capacity for the ordinary things of life, like marriage and children, um, that are good things. And, and, and so he tries then to bring Jane into this kind of like high, extraordinary vision for life. And she's like, no, I'm just an ordinary person. I want to get married to a man who loves me and have his babies and live in a house and, and live like a, that kind of ordinary life. And that that's going to be my pilgrimage to the kingdom. And Sinjin and that, can't, that's a high ends calling. up not being able to have that. It's a, yes. And so there's this contrast. And it's very clear in the novel that Sinjin dies a good man, but not necessarily a happy man. And that in, in living this extraordinary calling outside, like kind of like beyond the pale, then he gives up those ordinary virtues and those ordinary pleasures. The, he is denied them. And and that's a price that he pays. And the reader's asked to like wrestle with that, not necessarily to cast a value judgment, but to say, and and being Sinjin, you don't get to be to have like the ordinary joys. But in having the ordinary joys, you don't have this like high and lofty calling. And so that that I think is the dilemma that's presented to us, not Rochester good, Sinjin bad. Hmm. I wonder where Brocklehurst fits into that. I'm going to think about that. I think he's just bad. Well, I don't mean the good bad. I just mean the, the higher, <laughs> the higher calling and the the normal thing. Yeah, the, no, uh, that's a good question. And I think I think it's definitely true that the way she phrases, well, she says, "My Edward and I then are happy, and the more so because those we most love are happy likewise." This is on four thirty seven thirty five rather. And then she goes through the list of all you know. Sinjin's sisters and the different people in their life. And then it says, as to Sinjin, he left England. So like this, the construction of those paragraphs is as if to say, he left England, but he's 
not he doesn't fall under that category of people who are happy Mm -hmm. so i think you're right that he perhaps is outside of that but there is probably he probably has a sense of fulfillment that he has followed the calling that right that was put forth for him um i just wish he wouldn't touch her on the head so much (laughs) (laughs) that's like the worst part she keeps touching her on the head (laughs) i always like the picture i get of thinking of their relationship is always Jane crying under his like severe tutelage and her, him just like ignoring it and paying no attention because in his mind, like he's asking her to be better, right? He mm-hmm. is, he is going to train her. her. Yeah. yeah. He's a coach. And exactly. And she is, she, she has this passionate heart that he knows nothing about, or if he did, he would just want to train it out of her. And I think that's, that's a great point. He doesn't understand her mm-hmm. because it's so easy to judge him for the way he talks to her and, and the ways he thinks about her and the things that he judges her for, but he doesn't have a conception of the way she looks at the world or what's in her heart. So he can't possibly judge it accurately because it is like, he doesn't, I here we go with the word empathy again. I'm just going to use it for the sake of conversation. But he doesn't have the ability to empathize with the way she lives, the way she sees the world, the way she looks at the world, and as I said, the things that are going on in her heart. And so it goes back to how you, how do we judge him? But he, I I think there's a case to be made. He genuinely doesn't have a capacity Mm -hmm. to judge her rightly. It's not that he is making the wrong choice and is trying to manipulate her. I mean, he is a little manipulative, certainly. Definitely. But mm-hmm. so you know what I'm saying. But that's you know what not what's in his heart. Like he's right. not trying to like trick her. He's trying to like get her to understand her duty and, and, the beautiful and to join thing- him in it and to give up all those ordinary joys of an ordinary person with him. Right. And they're going to go pursue this lofty calling together. And she shouldn't need something as prosaic as like love in her marriage when <laughs> right. she has divine love of God. Right. Well, and the beautiful thing about Jane is that she rec- she does recognize the way he, this fact about him and she forgives him for it. That's why, she, that's mm-hmm. why she doesn't, when she talks to Roger, she doesn't say a bad thing about him. She, she's able to forgive the manipulation and the things that he does because she recognizes that there is an earnestness and a sense of calling in his own, in his own soul that is leading him to make unwise decisions sometimes. But she doesn't look at him and say, this guy's a, this guy's a creep, you know? Maybe he was, I don't know. <laughs> but, I get what you're saying. It's complicated. Yeah. Well, I think the fact that she forgives him she rec- is because she recognizes who he is, what's in his heart. She looks past the kind of words and the tactics he takes to the ultimate vision for life that he has, which is, and that's driven by faith. And what, and she, and she also sees his calling as true. Like she sees, yes, Mm -hmm. you are called to do this thing. The question is whether I am called to join you. Um, And then she ultimately realizes, no, I'm not. Um, So I think that's, that's pretty profound too, in terms of the wisdom that, that she displays in her forgiveness of him. Even if she doesn't say, I forgive him, it's clear that she does. Mm-hmm. Karen, go ahead. Why? Well, oh, go ahead. No. Yeah, no, I just, uh, I mean, I think uh, this is key that she she just basically sees him for who mm-hmm. he is in 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 an honest way, like his, his, his strengths and his limitations. And that's so much um, of 
so it's not even like forgiveness is the most important thing. It's really just a just assessment of who he is. And so often we're just like imposing our own views or projecting our own selves on other people. And Jane doesn't do that here. Um, I just wanted to look at a couple passages on page 665 um, where where this conversation is continuing um, and it's the, the line that she says to him when she's rejecting him again, she says, seek one fitted to you. This goes back to what I was saying that, you know, she's not rejecting him as a person. She's not rejecting his call on his life, but she's saying that they aren't a good match. She's not yeah. fitted to him. And then just one, one on that same page in the middle, it's just sort of a moment of, of possible foreshadowing. I don't know, but when he's arguing with her because she's, she's saying she'll go with him but not as his wife and he won't accept that and she's he says to her will he accept a mutilated mm. sacrifice um and that's just so interesting because later on you know she does um rochester is kind of a mutilated mm. sacrifice and we all are mutilated sacrifices in that respect um and god does accept us mm. That's so good. Well, and she goes on on page 665 to say exactly what David just said, which is in that conversation, she begins to understand him, right? right? And she makes this very important Mm -hmm. statement, how much of him was saint, how much mortal, I could not heretofore tell, Mm -hmm. but revelations were being made in this conference. Like instead of seeing him as this saint figure that she should follow and obey, she begins Mm -hmm. to see him as the flawed human that he is making Mm -hmm. human choices right? from his own motivation, some of them pure and some of them mixed in with his own depravity. And that then opens her eyes to understand him and forgive him to David's point. Yeah. And Um, I think for him, there's a sense of desperation mm -hmm. and it's not unlike the desperation that Rochester feels when he's being a little manipulative earlier in the book. I don't know that I can prove this from the text, but I, I would wager that there is a degree of w- to which Sinjin is looking at the the possibility of this life and the loneliness that's going to come with it. And he doesn't have this affection, you know, doesn't love her like romantically, but he does see that her characteristics would make him, would make her a worthy and a pleasant companion for the kind of work he has to do. And so I think she recognizes that, she recognizes all that. Um, and, and his desperation, his anticipation of loneliness and all those sorts of things are informing the decisions that he's making. Because sometimes he jumps from one thing to the next and he's, you can tell he's not thinking through, like I used the word strategy earlier, the tactics. I don't know how, some of it was tactical. Some of it is just instinctive. The way he in, it responds to her seems to be pretty instinctive. Um, I think she just recognizes that. Right. On page 666, significant number. Um, I think that Karen he set has it up his, like that for the for the right? edition. Yeah. His <laughs> most like unattractive moment in the whole novel to me is on page 666 when she was just sarcastic with him, and and then she says he was silent after I uttered the last sentence, and I presently risked an upward glance at his countenance. His eye, bent on me, expressed at once stern surprise and keen inquiry. Is she sarcastic? And sarcastic to me, seemed to say? What does this signify? And I think we get a glimpse there into his great pride, and 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 he believes himself to be an extraordinary man. And he tries have to the, fight have the that, capacity right? for it. Yes. And, and so then he like rebukes her strongly and tells her to be humble and humble herself before God or whatever. And in this, in this moment, I, this is the time when I'm, when I'm just like, ugh, yuck, 
run. Um, it wasn't when she said I that she shuddered. She does. Well, it, I think she does. Bronte does do a really good job of humanizing him and allowing us to see even what sometimes Jane isn't seeing, that he is a profoundly, he's a young man. He seems so young to me. Like this, this, he, he knows he's talented and he wants to please God. Um, but he has this break in him that keeps it to your point that both of you made this incapacity to, for empathy. And, um, but he's not really, he's not really a narcissist. He's, he's cut himself off from empathy, um, because he thinks that that's the sacrifice to God, right? Like he, he sees it as that. And that to me is like tugs on my heartstrings a little bit to think that that's something God would want, like to give us an ordin- the capacity for love and, and connection. And then to cast that aside to follow God doesn't ever ask us to do that. Right. And, but so anyway, but that moment when he's like so high and mighty with her, I just kind of want to punch him in the neck. So anyway, just a little glimpse into my personal response to him. <laughs> Karen, when do you want to punch him in the neck? <laughs> uh, when he says, and I guess maybe this was in the last uh, reading, It's it's the, that, that conversation is so extended, yeah. but where he says, you are formed for labor, not Ugh, for love. <laughs> yeah, when then he says, yeah. you no. shall be mine. I claim you not for my pleasure, but for my sovereign service. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. he says. Yeah. <laughs> well, and especially now, those kind of things have been, you know, I was thinking about it. Would you think, would you say that one of the reasons those kind of, that kind of language is so harmful and triggering and, you know, all those sorts of things for modern readers is because the noble notions behind that kind of language has been perverted over the century, throughout the centuries since then, that there was a time when that kind of way of thinking was maybe not, just justified but like that was said with the right intentions and then over Mm -hmm, time mm -hmm. as with many things of that kind like you know as with many virtues Mm -hmm. they get twisted um for nefarious purposes and so today we have we have seen so much twisting of that kind of language for nefarious purposes that we can't help but be like oh that's you know it immediately becomes and that's why that's why we have to remember how groundbreaking Jane Eyre right. was because this was revolutionary for a woman to to reject this kind of person this kind of language this kind of call you know mm-hmm. false call on her life because most people would have thought oh this this is mm-hmm. what she should have done speaking of groundbreaking before we go and we're going we've gone well over our time now can we talk a little bit about about Bertha I mentioned White Sargasso Sea. White Sargasso Sea was was written by Jean Reese 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 um, Reese, and it's meant to be a from her perspective, right? I haven't read it since school, mm-hmm. but was it groundbreaking that all of that happens off stage? All of the stuff with her burning the house down and all that would that have been something that most books at the time would have just included, or or, or the way she do it? Was that pretty consistent with the way they would have done it then? And any other thoughts you have about poor Bertha, throw them in here as well. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think, no, I don't think, I mean, I think that's probably sort of a criticism of the book um, is that Bertha is not treated humanly enough um, in, 
in, in the parts that she appears in and even just sort of kind of conveniently doing away with her. I mean, the focus is really is on, on Jane um, and that's why, um, but I don't, I mean, she's sort of a convenient device in many respects. So I think that's, that's the part, a part of the book that's not groundbreaking um, that just, just sort of follow in the, the Gothic genre. Heidi, go ahead. Yeah. I, Bertha by any, humane modern standards is by far the i think i think she's a troubling aspect to the novel because of that she reveals and troubling aspects of the times as well that's exactly right and even to karen's point bronte doesn't deal very humanely with bertha in my opinion um she is as you said karen she's a literary device she's the obstacle to jane and rochester being together but she's not she's never humanized in the story and mm-hmm. and for rochester to it, in fact he's held up as a hero for even trying to save her life right or or even feeding her and not allowing i mean there's there's an illusion in the novel that he he didn't ever feel right about just like leaving her at his other estate and allowing her to die because of the elements like kind of like essentially like starving her and mm-hmm. you know so there's, you know, and we're supposed to then say like, oh, good job, Rochester. That was, you're, you're a good guy, right? So that, I, I do find all of that very troubling. And I think in that sense, this, to Karen's point, this is not a part of the novel that is in, in which Bronte is ahead of her time. She is firmly entrenched within the prejudices and judgments of her own time towards mentally insane people. Have you read Wide Sargasso Sea? I have not. Um, I have, and um, it's, it's. I think it's a. It's better conceived than executed. It's just it doesn't. It could have been done a lot better. It's, it's interesting, yeah. but it's. It's, a, it's also like so yeah. deeply steeped in these literary post-colonialism yes, exactly. theories, and, and yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> um, I'm sure we'll get some questions about about Bertha for next week. Um, one thing that I was go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I think the most interesting literary thing um, Bronte does with with Bertha, is, and we talked about this a little bit before, is just the way she sort of parallels Bertha and Blanche, you know, just, again, the, the pair of names. I mean, Bertha is such an odd name, even for the time. Uh, it's clearly supposed to be connected to Blanche, a sort of, you know, doppelganger of, of Blanche mm-hmm. um, and that that's an that's that's an interesting literary device that tr- again transcends the gothic presence of the mad woman in the attic so would are you saying that the that it's a- like, so so like jane thinks blanche is the obstacle oh right right, right. okay it's really yeah, bertha yeah, yeah. it's really Got bertha it. and it's just it's just an interesting literary thing and then the way that then you know i think the the bees and the name the names are so mm-hmm. similar that yeah, yeah. that we are almost supposed to mistake one for the other. So, so then both of you are talking about that. It, this is the troubling aspect of the book, but isn't there a degree to which Jane, since since she sticks so she hews so closely just to being in Jane's perspective, wouldn't it make sense then that we don't get Bertha? That's the question that I've always had about that theory, be, that criticism, because she wouldn't have been in the tower. She wouldn't have been around her unless somehow Charlotte Bronte had had a encounter built an encounter into the story, which would have, that's a whole different set of plot points then. Um, I mean, we could have had Jane, Jane could have, you know, had an internal conversation with herself about Bertha that she doesn't have and, 
and it, she just she doesn't have the same kind you know she t- talks we looked at that passage where she said at the end they're happy because all of her the people she loves are happy and um you know I, she doesn't seem to wrestle a lot with bertha's presence uh, as a as a human being but more just as an obstacle. Well, and the portrayal of Bertha when she is around is, I mean, it's almost like demonic yeah. and bestial in, its, in the, the words that are used that she is, she's an animal. She's out of control. She's trying to drink blood. She's she's walking at night, right? It's very- Vampiric. Yeah, exactly. And it would have been pretty easy, right? To, yeah, yeah. Okay, I see to what like play yeah. that down a little bit, to have like Bertha look at her with sad eyes or even like, you know, anything that says like, this is a person, not just like a demonic mad woman hmm. who's compared to, you know, a harpy and a vampire and, and, and on all of this stuff, there's just such a diabolical quality to the way that she is portrayed in the novel. And that's in, clearly intentional. And so I think that like, kind of like that perspective I know that there's been a couple of of novels that are written. I I find novels like that not super interesting because they they tend so much to try to present the opposite point of view from that that then they they kind of go the other way and then just they're not always very complex or whatever. I'm sure there's exceptions to that. Um yeah. But I've I've intentionally not read it because I've thought this is going to undermine this is going to undermine Jane and I love her. So <laughs> Right. Well, speaking of undermining Jane, uh, we should probably go. Um, not sure exactly how that segue follows, but um, you've done, you've done better segues. Yeah, but I'll, yeah. I'll give it to you. You had to segue. <laughs> Next week we will answer your questions. Um, so remember, we will post those on the Facebook page. That thread will go up tomorrow. Well, today, if you're listening on the 21st of of May, and of course you can email them. It's David at uh, GoldberryBooks.com. Karen, any final thoughts? before we do the Q&A next week. Well, if, it, if this is released in time uh, for tomorrow on Friday, I am speaking, um, doing a, a discussion with the Trinity Forum on Jane Austen. Nice. So uh, you can give that a listen. And also through tomorrow, through Friday, I believe, um, I do need to want to say that my first book, Booked Literature in the Soul of Me, is on major sale um, in the Kindle form, Kindle form only. Nice. So check that out. Major sale. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, like five ninety nine nice. or something. So yeah, go get that. Yeah. Until through tomorrow, you said. Okay, I believe so. I, I know it's tomorrow. Okay. I don't know when All it right. ends. Well, yeah. If you listen to this on Friday, then gotta go get that. Gotta check that out. Howdy, what about you? Final thoughts? I don't have any final thoughts. Thanks to you both, uh, Karen. Again, this has been it's so much fun to have you on once a year. And next year, we've we've been talking about. I think it's gonna have to be Tess. People thought this was bleak. Um, I don't. <laughs> Before we go, I got to ask you a question. Have you seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Quentin Tarantino movie? Because you know that book, Tess is like a actually like kind of a plot point in the middle of that movie. I did see it. Uh, what she what goes, was it? She goes uh, into it? the bookstore to get um, Tess for her husband, and like in real life, that character. I, I don't want to give the movie away. That that character gave. Okay, all right. I I, I don't remember that, or I maybe missed it. I will check it. Next time you watch it, you should think about. I'll have to watch it again. A, as a character, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, it's worth watching again. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, well, we'll let you go. So with that, uh, for Karen Swallow-Pryor and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. <laughs>